Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's Infection Control Matters. It's Martin Kiernan here, and my guest today is Professor Michael Klumpus, who works at Harvard University and also Brigham and Women's Children's Hospital in Boston. Uh, so welcome, Michael, and thank you very much for talking to me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, now the background to today's uh, podcast is I was asked a few weeks ago to give a talk to the Healthcare Infection Society trainees on the subject of ventilator-associated pneumonia. So as usually, you go back and have a look at what, what data is. And actually, in the UK, we don't have very much data. We've done prevalence studies. So I looked back at the point prevalence study in 2011. And pneumonia, although the majority was non-ventilator associated, was the number one. And afterwards, some priorities came out, which was looking at standardized instant surveillance methodology for pneumonia and public benchmarking and instant surveillance in ITU, particularly ventilator associated pneumonia and learning tools for the prevention of healthcare associated pneumonia, none of which happened. So unsurprisingly, in the prevalence study in 2016, nothing much had changed. And my feeling is ventilator-associated pneumonia sits in the too difficult box. And Michael, I know you do a lot of surveillance on this topic in the United States, but you've been, I think, going back as far as 2007, you were writing that it's not a great indicator of quality. Could you Give me a bit of background on why you think VAP isn't a great uh, indicator of quality when comparing hospitals. Yeah, sure. So historically speaking, VAP was one of the metrics proposed to monitor ICU quality. And for those of us in the infection control and prevention community, um, that was always a challenge because we know how difficult it is to do surveillance for this condition. The core issue is that the diagnostic criteria for ventilator-associated pneumonia are neither sensitive nor specific. So if you think to yourself, what are those criteria, right? It's basically yeah. fever, abnormal white blood cell count, increase or change in sputum, increase or change in oxygenation, and uh, a new chest uh, infiltrate or consolidation. And each of those criterion is very, very nonspecific um, and not very sensitive and very subjective. And so you can get very thoughtful people trying to apply those same criteria and coming up with wildly different results. Mm. And the challenge is that when you try to make ventilator-associated pneumonia a quality measure, and all of a sudden you're looking at patients not just to determine truth per se, but rather to try to make your, sure your hospital looks good to protect your reputation or your compensation or your accreditation, then as you look at that patient and try to work out, are there more secretions today compared to yesterday? Is oxygenation truly worse or not? Is that a new infiltrate or is that just a little extra fluid on the lungs? You can't help but worry that people will bias on the side or tend on the side of undercalling events rather than overcalling. And we saw that happening because we saw ventilator-associated pneumonia rates in jurisdictions that uh, where, where there was a concern about quality reporting basically went down to near zero. Wow. If when you did independent clinical audits, there were still plenty of people who had been treated for ventilator-associated Yeah, yeah. And so uh, it, it emerged that this simply just was not a good metric for surveillance because of the subjectivity and because of the lack of sensitivity and specificity. And so um, that that was why we began our journey arguing against making ventilator-associated pneumonia a quality measure. Mm. So, I mean, CDC eventually made a recommendation for ventilator-associated events, which is somewhat different and also encapsulates many other conditions uh, with potentially bad outcomes for patients who are placed on a ventilator so how did that happen how did, how did cdc come to decide actually we're going to move away from vap 
per se, even though infection is within the encompass of ventilator-associated events? Well, I think, I think the CDC felt torn between, on the one hand, recognising that VAP is a, is a common complication in the hospitalised population, ICU population in particular, associated with very bad outcomes and mortality rates of 20 to 30% or more, depending on um, which series and which population you look at. Mm. Uh, yet at the same time, being sensitive to all the concerns being expressed by the infection control community about the difficulty and unreliability of, uh, of surveillance. And so faced with that, what CDC did is they gathered together um, representatives from stakeholder societies, including critical care and respiratory therapy and nursing and uh, infection control, so on and so forth, and said, you know, what, what should we do? And the group that came together said um, the following. They said, first of all, if we can't actually reliably determine who does and does not have ventilator-associated pneumonia using a surveillance definition, why are we pretending that we can? Mm. Number two, why is it that we're only paying attention to pneumonia as a complication of mechanical ventilation? Don't we also care about all the other very serious complications that can occur on a ventilator, such as AODS or fluid overload or pulmonary embolism or a dropped lung or, or, or what have you? Um, should we need actually a more inclusive metric so presumably that came from the the non-infection societies that came from the intensivists who are saying, actually, we want to look at this as well. Right, precisely, because they recognise that pneumonia is only part of the story. And yeah. control, maybe we're just focusing on that one angle. But yeah. if you want to say, if you want to measure my quality, why, why are you only paying attention to, uh, to, to the infectious complications? And so um, the beauty of it was that um, you can marry these two ideas and say, listen, if I let go of the canard, that I can reliably say who does or does not have an ventilator associated pneumonia. And I accept that it's a good thing to get a broader picture of the full array of complications of mechanical ventilation. What I can do is actually come up with a simplified surveillance definition that basically looks for a patient with a trajectory change in their uh, respiratory support. Hmm. The idea is that anybody who goes onto a ventilator, the mission is actually from the get-go to get them off the ventilator as soon as you can safely do so. And the way that that's classically done is that you progressively try to lower the amount of support the patient is getting from the ventilator. So from a surveillance perspective, if you're looking at a patient on a vent and you see they were taking less and less and less support from the ventilator, then all of a sudden there's a trajectory change and the patient suddenly requires more support for a sustained period, you know that something went wrong with that patient. Mm. Essentially, that's what a ventilator-associated event is. It's saying, let's look at the patient's ventilator settings to take their best value of the day so just basically one value per day for their uh, positive end expiratory pressure, one value per day for their fracture-inspired oxygen, we'll lay them out on a line list. And if we see their two days of decreasing or basically improving respiratory uh, physiology, then all of a sudden we see a sustained increase in ventilator settings, aka respiratory deterioration, and that's sustained for at least two days, that's a ventilator-associated event. Hmm. But the beauty of it is that um, it's very simple. You can well imagine how it's easy to teach a computer to, to do the surveillance for you. Yeah, that's it's nice. Highly objective, right? Um, yeah. And allows for a much more efficient infection control program because you don't have to spend all your time on surveillance. You can spend your time on prevention, sort of working out what's causing these and what we can do about it. Yeah. And it serves the role of capturing a broader array of complications because there are lots of things that can lead to a trajectory change of that it supports, not just pneumonia. It does capture congestive heart failure, ARDS, um, atelectasis, PE, etc. And these are things people would want to look at anyway. But I mean, these are routinely collected data, aren't they? Anyway, so that you, there is a, a big opportunity for automated surveillance, whereas using traditional definitions of VAP, 
you would really struggle to create algorithms, I think, to, to pick up something reasonably reliably, wouldn't you? Yeah, no, that's correct. So um, for a modern electronic health record system, it's pretty normal, routine to be capturing ventilator settings um, multiple times per, per, per day. Mm. And again, it's two settings in particular, the PEEP and the FiO2. Whereas the documentation of a change in secretions and the quality of the quantity or a, um, a new infiltrate, what have you, these are not things that are reliably documented in a structured fashion mm. for every patient every day. And so um, besides being subjective, they're not recorded in an electronic fashion that's easily amenable to automated um, evaluation. So once the change was made then, I think it's looking at 2012, 13, around that period. 13, yeah. What was the impact and, and how was it received at the time? Impact, I think, has been variable. I think that um, because it's so different from what was historically done, is that it really required a bit of a frame shift in both the critical care community and the mm -hmm. infection control community. Mm -hmm. The infection control community it put people, I think, into a bit of a, a different space where they said, well, all of a sudden now I'm tracking events that are due to excess fluids or to atelectasis or to ARDS. These are pretty much outside my wheelhouse. I, I, don't, I don't know much yeah. about these. Not, I, I'd feel that definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't know much about uh, about about prevention for these things. You, you've taken me out of the realm of infectious disease, so that, that's uncomfortable. So mm. they like the sort of the, the the objectivity and the automatability of surveillance, but not so much the understanding of what to do with events. And for the critical care community, while they can of course understand the broader array of complications, the word ventilator associated event is um, is novel to them. Mm. You go to your textbook of pulmonary and critical care. Medicine, certainly back in 2013, you won't see the word event that associated event. And so um, people didn't know what to make of this beast. It's something that had to be explained to people and had to be sort of sensitized to it. Um, so, so I think at first it was met with just really sort of a, a throwing your hands up, like, a, a, what is this? I understand the principle of you explained it to me. I'm still not too sure what to, to do about it. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, did it make people work together a bit more? Because, you know, infection people would have been thinking, I'm not comfortable with those type of events. but Maybe people working in critical care may not have been that comfortable with infection-related defence, so everybody might have thought, well, actually, we're all in this together, so we've got to work together a little bit on this one. Would, would that happen? Yeah, and I think that's, that's exactly the pathway forward, right, is that you, you, you need to form a um, strategic alliance hmm. between respiratory therapy and critical care and nursing and pharmacy and infection control to tackle these events together. Hmm. But, you know, like everything else in modern medicine, particularly in a critical care unit, it's complicated. You really need to bring to bear the expertise of of different kinds of uh, specialty groups to try to to maximally manage that population and to do so as a team, drawing on each individual's um, particular strengths and insights. So that yes, that that's exactly right. For the, the systems that are being successful against uh, preventing VAEs, um, it's because they've brought together critical care and infection control and respiratory therapy and pharmacy, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So that, that's an opportunity, but it's a challenge. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so uh, you said that people's when they started doing VAT surveillance, well, it's quite subjective, and then their VAT rate went to naught. But you still got lots of people on antibiotics for <laughs> for pneumonia on a ventilator. Did the similar? Did that actually help address that area where you you actually were more recognised? There was there was more, I suppose, convergence between what people are treated for uh, infection and whether. The surveillance definition fitted it or, or not? Well, it, it helped, helped for, particularly for the critical care community to say that um, when you say to me that I have zero VAPs inside my unit, it doesn't pass, this, pass the sniff test. 
Mm. Like, Who's stronger, guy on ammonia on antivirus for today? Um, and how, how, how you're not counting counting him? So I mean, I think I think that helped to as part of the argument as to what the problems were with vent associated ammonia surveillance. But but I think it's been overtaken by a broader sense of there still is this mismatch where critical care doctors are diagnosing in practice vent associated ammonia. They're treating them, yet the surveillance metric is slightly different. You know, we we know now that VAE accounts for pneumonia plus primarily um, excess fluids, ARDS, and atelectasis. Um, and so you have this mismatch between what they're seeing clinically and, and the, um, what the metric itself reflects. I mean, one thing that's come out of it is, that, you know, the recent publication that you led on, which was led by Shea, but with all of the other groups as well, is actually we've now not got strategies for preventing ventilator-associated pneumonia. We've got strategies for preventing ventilator-associated events. So there's much more collaborative and collegiate working evidence of that, isn't it, which has got to yeah. be really good. 100%. So, I mean, I th- think that's been sort of the real victory over the past uh, 10 years. That, that when this thing was first released, it was a, a, a strange beast um, without people really understanding what it is, nor what to do about it. Hmm. And the beauty of the past 10 years is that we now have, there's, there's a lot of studies characterizing the risk factors for ventilator-associated events. And now sort of a, a growing basket of studies actually evaluating prevention efforts and showing us that, that, yeah, we actually do know what you can do to prevent these events. And I think that helps to sort of bring the circle, to, to close the circle, because it's all very well to put a metric in front of the public space, but without clear evidence-based guidance on what to do about it, it's very difficult to, to know what to make of that metric. Yeah, sure. I mean, how would you class the quality of the evidence out there? Because there are still not many evidence statements that are actually classed as high quality of evidence. There's still lots of moderate and low quality evidence out there, aren't there? And you know, and a lot of same things in the reading of the paper seem to possibly reduce pneumonia, but actually don't really affect the overall outcome anyway in terms of length of stay and mortality. So, you know, could I ask you to comment about the quality of the evidence and what we can do to improve that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think what it is what it has done is helped to expose the um, the low quality of evidence underlying lots of pneumonia prevention uh, measures. Because of the weaknesses of pneumonia surveillance definitions, so again, the, the subjectivity and the lack of accuracy, mm-hmm. it's possible to see a, for a study to report a, a, a decent decrease in pneumonia rates and yet not have any impact on outcomes. Mm-hmm. Seeing now is that as people apply ventilator associated event definitions, um, it, it, it too won't show a change. So, in other words, um, you'll see something will decrease, decrease pneumonia rates but have no impact on duration of mechanical ventilation, ICU and stay, mortality, antibiotic utilization, and likewise, it won't have an effect on ventilator-associated events. Now, I would argue that that's, oh, that's helpful because now we actually have a more objective metric to actually work out if this prevention measure is effective or not mm-hmm. or just getting a fake out as to its, uh, its actual benefit. Yeah. So that's, uh, that, that's, that's good. I'll say that um, the evidence on risk factors for VAE, uh, there's a lot of data on that. I think we have a pretty good understanding of what that is. It's related to duration of mechanical ventilation. It's related to um, fluid utilization. It's related to, to tidal volumes for ventilation, um, sedation levels, uh, blood transfusions, and some of the, sort of the, key, some of the key factors, uh, some of the key risk factors. In terms of prevention, um, we... We have uh, we have a mostly um, quality improvement initiatives with time series based analyses of the impact on ventilator associated event rates. So that's that, that's that I'd say is sort of middle grade evidence. Hmm. There's only one randomized controlled trial that I'm aware of um, looking at VAE prevention. It was a randomized trial of um, uh, conservative fluid management during the weaning phase of mechanical ventilation versus usual care. 
And it actually showed that if you minimize the amount of fluids and try to take fluid off from a patient to run them at uh, as close to euvolemia as possible, that is associated with a substantial decrease in ventilator-associated events and a decrease in, uh, in, in duration mechanical ventilation. Hmm. But we only have one randomized controlled trial um, that actually looks yeah. at eight years and outcome. And so uh, that, that, that I think is the current gap is that we, we have good risk factor information. We have examples of QI initiatives that were successful in low VAEs, but only one randomized controlled trial. Yeah, I mean, it's everybody I think accepts that positioning and elevating the head of the bed is a very good thing to do. And yet it's low quality evidence, isn't it? You know, 35 to 40 is what everybody does pretty much. But you know, could you actually even get a study to actually look at that again, or is it? Are we going to be stuck with low quality evidence there? Do you think? For 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 elevating the head of the bed, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that's that's um, a difficult one because um, very few people will be consent. Will, will say it's uh, ethical to randomize a person to not yeah. elevate the bed. Yeah. It, enough of sort of a first principles concern or an ingrained sense of what's right that people won't do that. There, there are some examples though, uh, of ways that people have been able to to study this. So first of all, there was a randomized controlled trial of putting people in the lateral um, uh, Trendelenburg position, so basically mm-hmm. head down mm-hmm. on their side compared to elevating the head of the bed. The rationale being that you're getting secretions by gravity to go out of the, the, the lungs rather than um, allowing them to go down the lungs if you aspirate them. And it was actually associated with a decrease in VAP rates, but a higher rate of complications from people being upset. Oh, yeah. so, um, <laughs> but it showed you can do a randomized controlled trial taking sort of a very different approach. Yeah. Um, the other thing that people have done is that you can randomize people to to um, really to, to a quality improvement initiative designed to improve adherence with elevating the head of the bed to above a specified uh, minimum mm. compared to usual care. Because in, in usual care, right, I, I don't know what it's like in your place, but if you come up to, to a ICU over here and you sort of just do the, the, the rounds, um, you'll find a lot of people who are below 30 degrees. Yeah. So that's a stated what we should be doing doesn't mean we always are doing and so there's there's you you could randomize people to uh, you know optimize intervention using automated measures or alarms or education or the case may be compared to usual care that would be a way to to assess the impact of elevating the head of the bed without actually saying i'm going to randomize people to lie flat yeah that would be a way of doing it i mean it, I, i've put into place interventions over the years and you think it's running and you turn up and people are sometimes doing it they're sometimes not and i'd there was a, a group from the Netherlands who actually looked at a, a systematic review, a meta-analysis of RCTs for s- bundles for central line-associated bloodstream infection, and virtually nobody had reported compliance. Well, well, the people who did, it was suboptimal in everyone anyway. So you think, well, wow. <laughs> they seem to work, even if people don't necessarily do them, which is always a bit crazy, really. And I, I like to see compliance reported in, in the studies a little bit more often than they currently are. Can I ask you about the chlorhexidine orally because you're really not recommending that and suggesting you know that there are studies that suggest increased mortality. Have you any idea what the mechanism of that is? Because I I was asked that and I I have no clue really what you know, why that might be. Yeah, the 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 speculation is that in some small number of patients they might aspirate the chlorhexidine uh, into a lung inflammatory reaction. Okay. The data supporting this is, first of all, there are animal studies showing that if you put chlorhexidine into lungs, it does cause uh, an ARDS-like reaction. Hmm. And there's actually, from randomized controlled trials of other antiseptics, I think with providone iodine in particular, where they looked at ARDS as one of the outcomes, that actually was higher in the antiseptic arm. So those are the, the lines that suggest that might be the mechanism by which uh, chlorhexidine can cause harm in a subset of uh, patients. 
Uh, is it a quality measure now, the ventilator associated events in the in the United States? And are, how many people are actually using automated surveillance routinely to do this? And and how do you do actually do that? Does an algorithm throw up a potential event and then people go along physically to confirm it? Or how, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are lots of ways that different hospitals are doing this. So first of all, a lot of U.S. hospitals do do ventilator-associated event surveillance and report to CDC, depending on which year and what's going on in, in the world, anywhere between 1,500 up to 2,500 hospitals are reporting ventilator-associated events rates to CDC. So it is certainly being done. Um, in terms of automating it, there is commercial surveillance software that you can hook onto your EHR that can do it for you. You can do home-based programming if you have an IT department that has that kind of sophistication. Mm-hmm. Or if you have uh, sort of a later generation of some electronic health record systems, uh, like Epic, for example, uh, they have an infection control module that does include ventilator-associated event surveillance. So those are ways that you can uh, you, you can accomplish it. Would would somebody then go along and confirm it though? This is a suspected; it will flag no, up so, as a suspected, so, or is it just accepted as that's a ventilator-associated event, and then we will determine whether it's an infection or not? Yeah. So, so from a technical point of view, um, which it's actually up to a hospital's discretion. The, the computer's ascertainment, it turns out, is probably more reliable than human ascertainment. There, there are sort of head-to-head studies of computer versus uh, human being. Mm. And because it's it's, yeah, it's a monotonous process for a, for a human being to go through, they go through sort of lines and lines of numbers of ventilator settings. So you can imagine how the computer actually is actually better at that. Yeah, sure. And that's what happens when you try to see, compare the human to the computer. The computer gets it wrong when the computer's been misprogrammed. So certainly when you first are implementing, you have to do extensive validation to make sure that the algorithm is working right, that the data elements feeding it are right. But at that point, you don't have to go back to the bedside to, to, uh, to, to confirm the diagnosis because um, that's the beauty of an electronic automatable definition is that it works. What you do need to do, though, so as you shift from counting cases to prevention, is you have to understand what actually happened to the patient. Mm. Because when that associated events an umbrella term, but I would argue you want to know, was that a pneumonia? Was that a fluid issue? Was that a, a Lexus issue? Um, and what are the process of care associated with that event? And which of them are potentially modifiable? So I would argue that one should still do a root cause analysis or the equivalent um, on every event that associated event to try to work mm-hmm. out what were the contributing factors? Mm-hmm. What are the lessons um, that we could learn that can apply to trying to prevent this from happening in other patients? Yeah, um, but it's a different focus. It's not case validation; it's case understanding with a view to improvement. Are there any papers where they've reflected on that and said, "Okay, we found a common theme here, and this is what we're missing"? I've not seen any, but I haven't looked for them particularly. Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't seen ones that sort of describe a comprehensive process of root cause analyses and um, changes learned. Um, what there is is a lot of the, the number of papers that look to say amongst ventilator associated events, what do we think was the actual cause? Was it pneumonia? Was it fluid? Was it mucus plugging? Was it mm-hmm. sepsis? Or so on and so forth. There, there, there are a number of studies that, uh, that that comment on that. Typically, they say about twenty-five to thirty percent is pneumonia, about uh, tw- thirty to forty percent is fluids. Uh, the other fraction is about ten percent is ARDS, and the rest is is atelectasis. So that's, that's mm-hmm. usually what they find. And there's, there's a few stragglers on the outside. And then what different organizations have done is, is focused on different kinds of care improvement initiatives, typically related to improving ventilator management. So uh, and the classic over here is, is trying to minimize sedation and use spontaneous breathing trials to speed time to extubation. Mm-hmm. And um, that combination of minimizing sedation and trying to facilitate the earliest possible safe extubation um, has been tested a, a number of times. 
and has been shown to, to be very, very effective actually in decreasing VAEs as well as decreasing duration of mechanical ventilation. That, that's sort of the, the, the hallmark strategy. Other systems have created rounds-based tools that electronically warn the clinical team this patient has an impending event that associated event, they're about to meet criteria, or they just did, with the, the hope that that will lead to a care modification in the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's been shown to have potentially some effect in a, in a limited uh, kind of analysis. Um, so we focused on fluid management. What can we do to make sure that we're doing a better job running our patients close to eulemia? And some have focused on are we making sure that we're using lung protective ventilation strategies for our for our patients? Okay. But the, the biggest ones really are around sedation management and um, ventilator liberation. Another thing I'm interested in is: is there any evidence of infection preventionists becoming having closer relationships with critical care staff as a result of everybody having to work in this collaborative manner? And and because in the UK sometimes there is an us and, us and them. Yeah. where infection prevention are the enemy, if you like. I mean, I, I hopefully after COVID, it's less likely because I, I, my feeling is, and anecdotally, I know that relationships have actually got better across the healthcare settings. But I'm just wondering, because this has been going on for a while now, has there been any evidence of better relationships and more collaborative working? Uh, you know, I, I can't comment on any kind of data-driven way saying that, you know, in X percent of programs, there's now better relationships compared to, to before. But, but certainly there are um, examples of individual hospitals that have done a good job that, that has involved a collaborative approach between surveillance and uh, and the, the clinical side. Mm, okay. And any evidence of um, rates changing over a period of time then what you know because you've been running it for 10 years now or nine years not at the national scale and in fact with covid um rates have gone up um, as they have okay seen, yeah. i was going to ask about covid what was the impact yeah yeah well covid is interesting because covid i think uh, predisposes to an increase event that associated events uh, through two mechanisms one is sort of the um the general theme that in covid times that there's maybe less attention that's being paid to to routine preventive measures because the system's under stress and mm-hmm. People are spending less time at the bedside for this or that reason. Um, so that general sort of non-specific mechanism leading to increase healthcare associated infections applies to ventilator associated events. The other is that sometimes COVID itself might trigger a ventilator associated event. And what, what can be happening over here is that a patient who, uh, who comes in with COVID and then develops progressive respiratory failure, if that progressive respiratory failure happens in a, um, in a stuttering kind of fashion, meaning you're okay for a couple of days and then things get worse, that can actually trigger a, um, a VAE. And so that, that's interesting because mm. um, that sort of begs a whole line of questioning. So, so first of all, is it appropriate that uh, we're counting these as ventilator-associated events if it's simply the progression of underlying illness? And that leads to a big debate as to, well, could you have stopped the progression of that patient's ARDS by doing a better job of care by not putting the patient on the ventilator in the first place and using half the nasal oxygen, for example, by proning yeah. the patient, by yeah. using a protective lung ventilation strategy, by minimizing the amount of excess fluids in that patient. Perhaps there was a preventable point of deterioration, uh, steroids, baricitinib, so, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that's one point of uh, debate. And so if the ventilator-associated event triggers that kind of critical review and leads to insights into ways you can better manage that population, then, then arguably that still is, is a good. On the other hand, if these are non-preventable um, and just the automated sequelae of having COVID, um, then one would agree that, this, that it's unfortunate that these are getting counted as events. And I don't think we have clarity as to the answer on those, because arguably the only way you can answer that question is through prospective prevention. Retrospectively, it's very difficult to know what would have, what 
if things would have been different, if you'd done yeah. something. And finally, um, it's been running now for nine years. Are there any plans to review it, or are people quite happy and comfortable with the way it's gone and the definitions as they have been set? Is, is there acceptance that this is actually been a positive thing and this is what we're going to run with from now on? I don't know. I probably can't answer it honestly because I'm probably too invested in this, the history of VAE. Um, and this is all in CDC's court. And uh, it's not something that I've heard them speak about uh, recently. But I've not heard of any plans to to drop VAE. And I think if you look at the literature, we're slowly seeing more and more um, data being published about it, which means that it's, it's in people's radars, on the people's point, attention stack, um, that people are trying to better understand it and that people are trying to put uh, QI initiatives into place to try to prevent it. So mm-hmm. I, th- I think like anything else new in medicine, it takes a decade or two for it really to penetrate and for people to understand its dimensions and to um, how, how best to integrate it into practice. And I think VAE is on that trajectory. I won't say we're there yet, um, but I think that where we are now is very different from where we were back when we wrote the first set of guidelines back in 2014. So. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I, I, you know, going back in the pre-period, there were lots of papers saying VA, VAP is difficult and it's too hard to do and it's complicated and you know the other reasons you're going so subjective and not very good. And now we're, we're not. I don't see any papers like that. It you know, there's lots of papers that quote VAE changes and this is the what we did and these are the interventions that we. We did so. I'm not seeing it, you know a, a groundswell of feeling against uh, uh, these definitions in the literature. So, what you see is sort of a, a sort of a constant sort of low grade of papers sort of saying VAE is, is different from VAP. Yeah, the VAE is not is missing some of my VAP patients or it's overcalling my VAP patients. And uh, uh, yeah, that, that's right. It was designed to do that. It was designed to focus on a subset of severe pneumonias as well as to capture other stuff. Um, and so for people who sort of recognize that context of VAE, that's, that's, that's not a surprise and not a problem. For people who are still wedded to the traditional clinical concept of ventilator-associated pneumonia, which is still a valid clinical concept, mm-hmm. um, then that mismatch can be bothersome to them if they don't understand where, where it came from and why it's there. Yeah, I mean, no surveillance is perfect, but maybe this is less imperfect anyway. That, that's the feeling I'm getting from it. So anyway, thanks very much for spending the time to talk to me. Um, we'll obviously put the links to the papers, especially the fantastic Shea position paper and the recommendations for interventions to reduce uh, VAE uh, in the uh, in the spiel on the blog. But I'd really appreciate you spending the time to talk to me about this. It's something I think we should be a lot more interested in here in the UK. So thank you very much, Michael. Lovely. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, and goodbye everybody and hope to catch you again on another edition of Infection Control Massive.